Scarlet stood before the court, an attorney in a suit, swore an oath to tell the truth. Scarlet Welcome to episode three of season three. This is the final episode of our mini season of Judges on For the Defense. And as you know, we've shifted gears from the first two seasons where we spoke to criminal defense lawyers about their most interesting trials. And this season, we've spoken to judges about their perspectives on the criminal justice system. And I've gotten some heat from my former prosecutor friends and prosecutor friends who said, when are you gonna interview someone with a different perspective? Um, so I decided to ask Chief Judge William Pryor on the show. He hails from Alabama. He's the former Attorney General of Alabama, the youngest ever to hold that position. He made President Trump's shortlist for the Supreme Court. He's on the conservative wing of the 11th Circuit, and we certainly have different perspectives on the criminal justice system, that's for sure. But you'll hear that we also agree on some points uh, during this discussion. So I want to thank Judge Pryor for being a great sport, coming on the show, discussing uh, appellate judging, the criminal justice system, sentencing, trials, legal writing, and so on with me. Let's get right to it. I'm David Oscar Marcus, and this is For the Defense with Chief Judge of the 11th Circuit, William Pryor. All right, well, I'm really excited this morning. I have the Chief Judge of the 11th Circuit, William H. Pryor, on the podcast. And uh, he's one of the smartest people that I know and that I've dealt with. So it's going to be a real uh, pleasure to talk to him this morning. He took the bench back in February of 2004. And before that, he was the Attorney General of Alabama at the age of 34 years old, which is incredible. Uh, He's also served on the United States Sentencing Commission, was appointed by President Obama, and was on President Trump's shortlist for the United States Supreme Court. So pretty incredible welcome to the show, Judge Pryor. Uh, it's good to be with you, uh, David. Um, this is a good opportunity uh, this morning. Usually I'm asking you questions, so you get to ask me questions. <laughs> you know, it's true. And and uh, usually I'm under the gun with you with uh, with with questions and, and trying to, um, to fight for my clients. This is a unique opportunity, so I'm excited for it. Me too. So, so let me start out. I mean, with the shortlist, that must have been exciting to be named on a shortlist for the Supreme Court. I, you know, just as a young lawyer and a young person to be named to the Supreme Court is like being named to the 27 Yankees or something like this. So it's, it's pretty cool to be thought of for that position. Well, um, it was an unusual experience. <laughs> um, got a trip to Trump Tower. Uh, that was different. Um, but um, I think it worked out fine the way it worked out. Um, uh, the, the president picked uh, a great pick, I think, very highly of uh, Justice Gorsuch. And, uh, and I'm happy where I am. You know, um, my, my fear is that I would have had to miss um, my beloved Alabama football games. And I, I don't have to worry about that, although the pandemic <laughs> caused me to miss attending those last seasons. You know, I was I have starred on my list of questions in case we disagree about something, a place of agreement, which is this receiver that the Dolphins drafted uh, from Alabama Waddle. I mean, we can agree he's going to be awesome, right? <laughs> uh, he's he's a dynamic player and incredibly fast. Um, and and Tua, I think, knows how to get him the ball. So that's right. That's that, right. 
I like I like the odds of him being uh, something, uh, someone who's going to please you on Sundays. It's been so long since the Dolphins were good. See, you guys are used to winning up there. It's been a long time for us, so we need we need some of these Alabama players to to change it for us. Well, everyone goes through their droughts, um, you know. Uh, back in the, the the great Dolphins teams, though, had had some great Alabama players, uh, Bob Baumhauer, right, uh, as an example. Right. Well, well, let's turn to the law a little bit. I'm sure we'll get back to Alabama football at some point. But you know, I I was when I was looking at your career, Judge. I mean, being the Attorney General at age 34. Um, an amazing accomplishment. Is that too young to be attorney general or was that okay? You know, I think it was a great age to be attorney general. For some reason, Alabama has had a history of uh, young state attorneys general. One of, um, I think the most important attorneys general in the history of Alabama was a man named Bill Baxley, mm-hmm. who was elected in uh the 19th, early 1970s at the age of 28. Oh, my. Uh, he prosecuted the first of the church bombers in the 16th Street Baptist Church um, bombing. And um, and I think sometimes uh, being young uh, means being idealistic and, and perhaps not knowing which, what's not possible. It's very true. <laughs> uh, and and um, I think there's some good things that come with uh, youth. Um, I had, I had the, um, the good experience of having worked in the office for the two years before I was appointed attorney general uh, as the top civil litigator for the office. So I understood the office well, and I think the other attorneys in the office knew me well. That helped uh, a great deal, uh, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a it's a tough job because it's a political job. It's right. an elected office. Um, and uh, looking back at it, uh, I, I'm not sure I would have wanted to do it at, um, at a later age. Um, uh, it really came to me at a, at a great time in, in my career. And, um, and, and, and I love doing it. It's a great combination of, uh, both the intersect, the intersection really of law and public policy. Uh, you're, you're still very much a lawyer, uh, and you get to look at the law in an objective way. Uh, that in, in some ways is really great preparation for being a judge. Um, but, well, but, I, but I, I, you know, I, um, I'm glad I was able to do it in my 30s. Right, right. You know, it's interesting because it is such a political job, uh, being the attorney general or, or any other uh, political job is so different than being a judge, especially a, a federal judge where you have lifetime appointment. Um, I imagine... Well, let me ask you this. Is there one that you like better than the other? Is it, is it, I mean, cause they are so different. Well, I like my, my current job better. Um, but, but I think it was better for me to be the state attorney general first. I, I do think that it was a great experience in helping me, helping prepare me to be a judge. As you know, uh, if you're a federal circuit judge, you have to be a generalist. Uh, I had been, um, 
in private practice. I had clerked for a year on the on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans, mm-hmm. so I had some awareness of what a federal circuit judge uh, does, and really had a, a a marvelous clerkship. But but for the several years afterwards, had practiced mainly commercial litigation. I'd represented railroads and banks and. Uh, a lot of governmental institutions and civil rights litigation and employment discrimination, construction litigation, things of that kind. But that, I was, you know, a, a commercial litigator, uh, really. And um, I came to the AG's office um, working first for then Attorney General Jeff Sessions, um, doing a lot of high profile cases involving constitutional law, voting rights, civil rights. And um, and then as AG got to work on a lot of criminal law, did some prosecutorial work, did habeas work, did work in capital punishment, uh, and, and just saw so many areas of law that helped me to be, I think, a better generalist once I was able to become a federal circuit judge. You know, there are so few generalists now. Judges, of course, have to be. My father was a lawyer for 50 years down here in Miami. He was one of those old lawyers who who, you know, took whatever it was. If a probate case came in the door, he took a probate case. If a family case came in the door. Now, if even if you do criminal law, you have to specialize in what criminal law you do. There are no generalist lawyers in right. private practice anymore. It's really quite different than it used to be in the old days. And even when you're, when you're in a job like the AG, um, I imagine being the AG, though, was when you're in the political spotlight in the media, there's a lot of fun to that. I've heard from some of my judicial friends that being, especially on the Court of Appeals, can be kind of lonely sometimes. You're not in the spotlight. You're not with uh, in the action. I mean, do you feel that way sometimes? I mean, sort of being in your chambers, writing opinions can get lonely. Yeah, I think that you can, you can certainly allow that to happen. I think, though, it's not... Um, I don't think it has to happen, and I don't feel as if it's happened um, for me. I still do a fair amount of um, lecturing, um, but and I don't have to do it with the Aniana Alabama Rotary Club anymore. Um, so <laughs> right. I'm able to speak to um, no, nothing against them. They had they had great fried chicken, uh, but um, but I you know. I, I, I'm now able when I when I do public speaking, it's usually on a on a legal topic. Um, now it also means that that speaking is going to be far less often extemporaneous. I'm sure. going to want to really give it uh, some thought and, and preparation. Uh, but but I really like being a lawyer and and love the law, uh, and so uh, I still do that. I still um, I still teach. Um, I've I've taught at a couple of law schools while serving as a circuit judge. Um, and that, you know, that gets me out to more in the community. I think judges have some obligation to, um, to involve themselves in the wider, uh, legal community in a way to where we don't, we don't appear to be in an ivory tower and, or some kind of hermits. Right. No, I think it's really important. And, and you said something that struck me just then, which is, you know, you still love the law because there are so many lawyers out there, I think, that don't love it like we do. And, you know, I think you can tell through your writing uh, and your speaking, you know, obviously your passion and have strong views and, and, and love it. 
Um, I, I feel the same way and why I, I, I'm doing this, for example, so many lawyers out there don't like it, which is such a disappointment because it, it can be great. Yeah, I tell my law clerks, um, don't go into an area of practice or an area of work that you don't like. Um, don't do it just for the money. Um, the, the law is not worth it. Uh, no, <laughs> that you ought to enjoy going to work every day. It's still going to be work. There are going to be tasks that you don't, that, you know, that, that aren't fun. Uh, but, but a lot of it should be fun. You, know, you, should, you should be um, excited about your professional work as a lawyer. I think, I think that's, that's something that is available to all of us. People always think I'm crazy because I, I actually like doing these oral arguments in front of you guys where I get beaten up by uh, you and your colleagues. Um, l- let me ask you about that, actually. So, so you know, you were attorney general. Most of your colleagues at some point served in the government as a prosecutor or for some part of the executive branch. There are very few um, public defenders on the Circuit Court of Appeals throughout the country. Shouldn't we have more professional diversity? I mean, I, I understand you bring something different than most people. You were the attorney general of your state. There's very few of those. But I mean, don't we need some more public defenders on the court? I think what we have to have are lawyers or former judges who have relevant experience. And, um, and I don't think that any one side of the profession has a monopoly on that. Sure. Uh, so, um, you know, I, the federal judiciary has, I think, a tradition of excellence. Um, so I think the first um, criteria has to be really excellence and intellect and very high integrity. Um, but, but there's, I, you know, I, I don't think that it only comes from prosecutors or uh, from big law firms you know, or, or that sort of thing. Um, I think that uh, we can find um, that kind of excellence in, in a lot of areas. But, but um, unfortunately, uh, with the changing landscape, I think, of the federal docket, um, not all lawyers really have relevant experience. I, I think defenders, uh, federal defenders, obviously, uh, would have relevant experience. But, um, I, I, you know, the wider the experience, I think, the better. Um, sure. I, I think that a mix of um, public sector experience and private sector experiences I had um, is helpful as well. Of course, of course, many have only had one or the other, and that's right. okay. Um, but, but yes, uh, I think the greater the mix, um, the better, um, you know, both for the individual judge and for the court as a whole. Right. You know, I interviewed Judge Rakoff for the podcast, and and he had some really interesting views. His one of his uh, arguments is that prosecutors, before they're even prosecutors or during prosecutors, should have to serve a term as a public defender for a couple of months um, and see what it's like on the other side, like they do in England, and have both uh, both sets of experience. And I thought that was a really interesting idea. You know, prosecutors come into court in Miami and all around the country, and they throw out, hey, this person should go to jail for seven years. They don't understand what seven years or 10 years or four. But if you represent a person as a defender, I think you get that different experience. Now, I don't think that's going to ever happen, Rakoff's uh, proposal, but it's an interesting one. Mm-hmm. Well, some of the best 
defense lawyers have been prosecutors and <laughs> in, in their experience. You know, I, I also don't think you ought to be um, shutting out any segment of the bar. Um, right, right. But, but, but um, uh, I, I think of the prosecutors who used to work for me who have since become defense lawyers. I would fear them in a courtroom if I were a prosecutor. <laughs> Uh, so I think there's something to uh, Ray Call's idea. I, I think, you know, uh, I, I don't know. Have you spoken with Chuck Breyer yet? I know coming up, coming you, up. You were going to. Um, I you think, beat him to the punch. You know, he, yeah, he, he has um, he has that kind of defense experience as well. And I, I think I think he would agree with, with Ray Call about that. We've got a lot more with Judge Pryor coming up and for the defense. So you heard Judge Pryor ask whether we've spoken to Judge Breyer yet. And when I interviewed him, we had not yet because we take these out of order. What's interesting is both of them, Pryor and Breyer, sat on the sentencing commission together. Um, and it's also interesting to me that President Obama was the one who nominated Judge Pryor to the commission. Now, if you haven't been able to tell over three seasons, I absolutely despise the sentencing guidelines. I think they're unfair. The, they result in sentences that are way too high. They lead to us not having as many trials and they just make no sense. And so I applaud Judge Rakoff's um, take on the sentencing guidelines, trying to get rid of them, reduce sentences and so on. I'll go back and forth with Judge Pryor now a little bit about who's responsible for sentences? Should it be Congress and the commission? Should it be judges? Who's in the best place to sentence a defendant? And uh, no surprise, my take on it, of course, is that we should trust judges much more than we should trust Congress in fashioning sentences that make sense for an individual defendant. But let's get to it. Uh, We'll talk about that with Judge Pryor next in For the Defense. You know, one thing you mentioned is that, you know, putting fear into the other side. Um, the truth is that there are so few trials anymore. Um, trials are way, way down. I mean, it used to be in the, even as close back as the 80s, you know, 20% of cases went to trial. Now, 3% maybe. Um, some people say it's a good thing. You know, cases are resolving. That's good. But to me, it's such a bad thing. I, I became a lawyer. One of the reasons I love the law is to get into a courtroom and try cases, um, to do these appellate arguments. But I mean, let me ask you first, is it a good thing or a bad thing that trials are so way down? It's not, I don't think it's entirely good or entirely bad. Um, I think some of it, a lot of it is a function of money. Um, oh, that's true. And, and that, that's always going to be the case. Uh, one of my concerns has been, uh, that the federal judiciary not contribute to the problem by making um, our proceedings too slow, too complicated. Um, And to the extent that we increase the cost, uh, I think we need to be conscious about that and whether what we're doing to increase the cost is worth it, Mm -hmm. Uh, whether you get more benefit than you do cost. Uh, And and so um, one of my biggest concerns is delay. And I think to some degree, um, the length of delay in in getting a case to trial 
is um, is one of the reasons we have fewer trials. Uh, you know, it's also why a lot of of civil litigants have opted out of the court system and opted for private dispute resolution, which I don't think is an all bad thing or an all good thing um, uh, either. Um, and on the criminal side, though, I do think it's a little d different. I think the cost is is calculated probably in a different way. I, I think the penalties can be uh, so substantial um, that it's that it that the cost of going to trial and losing is 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 so high that it makes trial untenable for a lot of defendants. Uh, and well, see, you're buttering me up now. You're 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 getting me right into my wheelhouse, Judge. Yeah, but, but but you know that's really an issue more for uh, for Congress um, for for whether the the penalties are um, harsher than they ought to be or not. Um, it's not an issue as that the judiciary is really equipped to deal with uh, as well. I think. Well, let me take you on on that point because this is, I think, such an important point and 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 really gets to the heart of it. I mean, you served on the Sentencing Commission. And, and, you know, one of our, one point that we both agree on is how great Justice Scalia was. He wrote the dissent in Misretta saying, you know, sentencing yep. guidelines were unconstitutional. The uh, dissent is right. It was the lone dissent. The lone dissent. Fair, fair enough. Um, yeah. But, but, you know, the commission and the sentencing guidelines, a lot of people point the finger at at those guidelines that got passed in the mid 80s as one of the reasons sentences went up and trials went down. I mean, what what's your view on that? My view on that is that the commission did precisely what Congress told it to do and that um, it's wrong really to blame the commission for that. Uh, the commission was obliged to fulfill um, the will of Congress in the, as reflected in the Sentencing Reform Act. Uh, and, you know, at, at the same time that was being passed, Congress was also passing a lot of statutory mandatory minimums for a lot of different crimes. Um, and that, too, is not the fault of the Sentencing Commission. Um, in fact, the Sentencing Commission has, has argued for a lot of policies that have called for um, that have actually led Congress to adopt less severe punishment. Uh, you know, the Sentencing Commission was was making the case for what became the reforms of the Fair Sentencing Act long before Congress passed the Fair, Fair Sentencing Act, uh, for example. Uh, so, it, you know, the Commission has 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 pointed out that. Um, the career offender guideline doesn't make as much sense insofar as the the triggers the 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 prior convictions that tr trigger the career offender guideline to the extent that they're only drug trafficking offenses. And the same is true for the Armed Career Criminal Act to the extent that those are only drug trafficking offenses as opposed to some prior convictions that have at least some violence in them. That the the differences in recidivism between the the groups of offenders is pretty pretty substantial, and 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 has urged Congress to amend that. But but there there are limits to what the commission really can do. Yeah, I mean it's interesting, right? Because you you mentioned Congress as the body who's better equipped. There's always this debate: should it be Congress 
executive branch, judicial branch, who is, which is branch is best for determining sentences. I trust judges. So to me, I'd rather have a judge who has the person in front of them who can really dig into the case and figure out who is this person, what's the appropriate sentence, then Congress, who's sort of you know, making general rules that aren't going to apply all that well in the individual case. Um, and, and if we get into the Sentencing Commission, you know, I always laugh at the loss uh, 2B1.1, the loss guideline. Like, I really can't figure out why is a um, million dollars loss gets you this point, points right. where 500,000 gets you this points. And right. it, it's, to me, yeah. let's, I think judges are better equipped for those decisions. Yes and no. Um, there's, there's, there's certainly a role, um, a role for individualized sentencing. Um, but, but I think you could have, um, a myopic kind of view of the history of this. Um, if, if you, if you think that judges are the only answer, um, it, you know, if you go back and read Marvin Frankel's book, uh, law without order, uh, where he first proposed the idea of a, of a sentencing commission, and, um, and, you know, see what he said about the disparities that existed in sentencing and how similar offenders could receive very different punishments for very similar crimes. Um, I, you know, I don't think that's a good thing. Um, I don't think that's a fair thing. Um, I don't think that's good criminal justice um, policy. Uh, so, I, I, I believe in the goals of the Sentencing Reform Act, um, as, as you probably know. Uh, I think that the Sentencing Guidelines Manual was uh, utopian, and uh, that the, the, the effort was was made more complicated than it should have been. I think that was Judge Frankel's view um, as well. Uh, in some ways, the first guidelines that were far simpler, uh, and I think that. Um, a simpler um, set of guidelines, or re really a reboot of the guidelines, is something that the commission needs to um, to think about seriously to make um, the guidelines more relevant. Now that, particularly now that they're advisory, um, it's like the tax code when you look at that book. Now, I mean, you know, each yeah. uh, each guideline has a, a million different subsections and cross re cross references. I mean. Forget about a client trying to understand. It's hard for lawyers and judges to get through those guidelines. Oh, I totally agree with that. Um, you know, a 575-page manual is is um, is not what we need. Sure. Um, no. And I, you know, the loss table I think is a uh, is a good example. There ought to be far broader category. You know, fewer and broader categories of loss. I do think that the amount of loss matters if you're trying to distinguish uh, more culpable offenders from less culpable offenders, just as I think that the number of victims can matter and, 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 and some other kinds of, uh, of relevant conduct, as we call it. Um, sometimes, but, right? But, but sometimes. Right. Sometimes yeah. it matters and sometimes it, it doesn't. Like for, for loss, for instance, I mean, we all know the case, right, where the person doesn't have a good sense of the scheme and how big it is, because in, in American law, you can be held responsible in a conspiracy if you do one small act mm -hmm. and you can get held responsible for the entire amount of loss. Yeah. Um, and, and so the guidelines, I think, you know, aren't fine tuned enough to deal with those situations. 
Yeah, well, one of the things that I think um, uh, Professor Rachel Barco, who, went, who served with me on the commission, tried to tried to get us to do more often is um, in, in looking at something like that, um, uh, is to make sure that if you're being swept in because you're a member of a conspiracy, that sort of thing, that there are some mens rea requirements um, sure. uh, to, to help um, prove um, your culpability and, uh, and that it is fair um, to, to, to hold you responsible for, you know, for the larger goals of, um, of, of a conspiracy, for example, jointly undertaken activity. Um, um, but, but, you know, I, I think in, in kind of rebooting the guidelines and making them far simpler, what the, the, what the commission ought to be focused on are the factors that really do make a difference. It, the commission's done terrific work, um, in, in re- researching recidivism and, and applying recidivism research, um, to the federal offenders, to the entire universe. And the, the commission gets all the data from all the sentencing courts in the country. And um, it can really tell you um, which, which um, parts of the guideline make sense from a recidivism perspective, for example, um, and which really do distinguish um, you know, more culpable offenders from less culpable offenders. Um, I mean, one of the things they would say that really matters is having a firearm uh, when, you, when you commit an offense, that it really, that, really does distinguish uh, some offenders from others in terms of recidivism risk. No, that makes a lot of sense. And But I guess my response to that would be, you know, the guidelines are a system where you add up points. And yep. the only real subtraction is acceptance of responsibility. But with that recidivism study, it would be nice if you could point to a judge and say, look, based on these recidivism factors, we should take away some more points for X, Y, and Z. Because it doesn't make sense to put the guy in prison for for this amount of time if he's not going to recidivate. Yeah, if you've got some indication that that's the case, um, right, right. that they're not going to recidivate, I, um, I agree with that. Um, you know, one of the aspects, though, of the guidelines that um, is is as empirically based as anything uh, is really amazing. The amount of empirical support for it is the criminal history. Uh, chapter, um, you know, that really has um, done a good job of distinguishing um, higher risk offenders from lower risk offenders. Right. No, that makes sense. I mean, the more criminal history you have, it would seem to lead to more recidivism. Um, and that's why I'm such a big proponent of first time nonviolent offenders mm-hmm. not being thrown away for 10, 12, 15 years. It just it, it doesn't make sense to me. But let let yep. me ask you, um, let me just switch topics for a moment, a topic that's another topic that's important to me and one you've written quite a bit about, which is prosecutorial misconduct. So, so um, I'm going to turn back to an old case that we had uh, that I argued and lost. Uh, I could go, we could talk for a long time about cases I've lost in front of you, Judge, but this one was a big one, United States versus Shagan. And it's the one time where, I, one of the few times where I'm the appellee in a case, right? The government appealed. Um, and it's a case where uh, Judge Gold, we got an acquittal. Judge Gold found the prosecutors engaged in bad conduct uh, and sanctioned them, both the government monetarily and the individual prosecutors, and, and the government appealed. Um, and one of the ways I think we need to get trials back is by deterring prosecutorial misconduct like Judge Gold did. And 
And you wrote a two to one opinion in that case, reversing both the uh, Hyde Amendment award and the individual sanctions award. I mean, how can we stop prosecutorial misconduct? It's such a problem um, in our courts and, and nothing seems to be done about it. One thing we can do is we, we ought to make sure that um, bad actors in the law enforcement community um, are prosecuted when they commit crimes. Uh, when I was a state attorney general, I formed a public corruption and white collar crime unit. And, and one of the um, uh, frequent areas for prosecu prosecution and investigation by that unit uh, involved corrupt law enforcement. Uh, so um, I've, I've always believed that that's um, one of the primary tools for dealing with with misconduct it, to the extent that it is truly misconduct um, and, and, and intentional and um, and very harmful misconduct, um, it, then then frequently it will be criminal misconduct um, and and uh, it ought to be prosecuted. Uh, it, it, I mean, I would think when I was in law enforcement, I, I wanted the law enforcement community to be respected, and I thought that in, that one of the the ways of doing that was ensuring that that the bad actors were prosecuted when they engaged in criminal conduct. Um, no, no question yeah, about that. Yeah, uh, you know, I don't really want to. I like my opinions to speak for themselves, and so I don't like to rehash. Um, yeah, you know, earlier appeals where I've written uh, opinions, but at, you know, at the end of the day. Um, what sanctions are appropriate um, depend a lot on uh, the relevant statutes and what what Congress has provided. And I try to give those um, uh, a fair interpretation and the best interpretation as I understand uh, the text. Um, that doesn't necessarily reflect what I think the law ought to be. Um, and, and I really try not to think about that as much. Sure. Um, you, know, you know, I think that... Um, trial judges are in the best position to uh, observe the misconduct that occurs, uh, you know, on the, on the ground level. Uh, and, and, and they need to, you know, employ the tools that are available to make sure that misconduct is policed on, on all sides of the legal system. Um, and, and our review of their work and the, of the decisions they've made in that area, uh, we, we have to, you know, we have to make sure everybody's given due process. We have to make sure that the law is uh, is being fairly interpreted. But where where they're really acting within their discretion, we have to respect that and um, and support them in that work. I, I do agree that you have to let your opinions speak for themselves. I will read one line of your opinion. Which made me <laughs> oh, very I bet happy. I know what line it's going to be. Who said uh, Shagan was represented by an elite defense lawyer and Shagan's superb counsel took advantage. Uh, I, 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 uh, I think that was right on point, Judge. So I, I, uh, I am in favor of that one line of your opinion. I think it was a backhanded compliment because you went on to yeah. uh, uh, kind of mock yeah. me for talking about the Salem witch trials um, in, in that trial, which, by the way, I was ahead of my time talking about witch hunts. <laughs> um. David, you were very successful in representing your client, and um, and it, there was no mock intended. <laughs> okay, um, good. good. <laughs> when I wrote, I wrote sincerely. Let's take a quick break there and get back to Judge Pryor in a moment in For the Defense. 
So what Judge Pryor and I were talking about there is a decision that I've talked about on prior episodes, the Ali Shagan decision, which was an appeal that the government took. So we had won the trial and then Judge Gold courageously ordered the government to pay for our fees because of the misconduct that they had committed both pre-trial and during trial. And after doing that, the government appealed and said we shouldn't have to pay the fees because the prosecution itself, the grand jurors, approved of and so we didn't act in bad faith um, and judge Pryor, in his opinion it was a two to one opinion said the government did not have to pay the attorney's fees even though shagan won and even though the prosecutors judge gold found had acted with bad faith and in that opinion he praised me judge Pryor, for the closing argument in which I talked about the Salem witch trials, I said he was mocking me because he sort of put the witch trials part in quotes um, to say that I took advantage of what happened at the trial with the bad faith. But um, this was back when doctors had not been prosecuted at all for the opioid crisis and it had just started. And I thought the prosecution of Ali Shagan was unjust and wrong. This was a young doctor who I believed, I truly believed was acting in good faith. And so I compared the prosecution of, of him and other doctors to the Salem witch trials. And I said, you know, thank goodness we don't trust prosecutors with making the final decision about who was a witch like they did back then. We needed to have jurors. And I tried to, in my closing arguments, empower the jury to do the right thing and say they have the power to override prosecutors and judges. And um, there were 141 counts in that case, and we heard 141 not guilties. It was really, really um, amazing. I can't describe the feeling. There is no feeling when you represent someone who you truly believe to be innocent and you get not guilties across the board. Um, but that's the story of the Salem witch trials that Judge Pryor and I were talking about. And um, we'll get back now with some more uh, interviews with Judge Pryor in For the Defense next. So let me ask you to switch topics, maybe a little less controversial is, you know, we've been doing these Zoom arguments. We're doing this interview over Zoom um, for the past year now. I've, I've done a bunch in your court, I think four or five Zoom arguments. I will say I like them um, because it's a lot less stress on the advocates to appear like this than to go have to perform in court um, in, a, in a full courtroom and all the uh, things that go along with that. But I, I do think there's something lost um, with not being in court. And I miss being in court. So I was wondering what you've uh, thought about the Zoom arguments over the past year. And are we going to stick with some of them or are we going to get back to live court uh, appearances? We're getting back to live court appearances. Um, in fact, um, the court's going to be rehearing an appeal on Bank in June. And we expect to do that in person. Oh, fantastic. Uh, and um, our court employees uh, are the first phase of court employees returning to our courthouse and our annex um, will start in Atlanta on, on Monday of next week. Um, and I expect that all the court employees in Atlanta, where, where most of our employees were, will, will be there um, after, after Memorial Day the first business day after Memorial Day. Um, but I think the judges are anxious to get back. Um, now, 
having said all of that, I will say, I think Zoom has worked better than I had even hoped or expected. And, um, and I think it, this experience has, ta- has taught us that we have more tools available to us sure. uh, to enhance our work um, than, than maybe we realized before. Uh, and I, so I do think, I, I think we all want to get back to doing our work in person and think that that is ordinarily how the work ought to be done. But as you know, there are, there are times in the past where because of the exigency of time or some kind of deadline, uh, for example, let's say there's a, a motion to stay in execution uh, with, with a lot of, um, of time pressure. We might not have had an oral argument um, in the past, or if we had one, we might have done it by a telephone um, oral argument, and it ended up being fairly clumsy. And I, I think we've seen how effective a tool something like Zoom can be. And I think um, the good news is that in some instances where perhaps we would not have had um a video oral argument in the past or any kind of really meaningful oral argument, we, we now can have a much more effective right. tool available to us when we're not able to do an in-person argument. It's fascinating too, like the dynamics have changed in some ways with these arguments. Like Justice Thomas, of course, famously never asked questions, but now right. with the way arguments are, he's very engaged in oral argument and yeah. You know, it's it's just interesting to see the different dynamics with Zoom and and how things have changed. I, I, let me let me ask you though, you know, people say cases are decided on the briefs, and, and lawyers have this view that, you know, oral argument is 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 fun and and interesting, but really the judges have made up their mind before oral, oral argument. Is that true? I mean, do should we advocates think? Um, that most of the decisions are made on the briefs, or can we actually change your mind during an oral argument? You can change our mind during an oral argument. Um, and, and I think one thing uh, lawyers and litigants ought to know is that um, for the most part, our, our judges have not talked about the cases we will hear an oral argument beforehand. Uh, and so my experience is at least 90% of the time when I walk into um, a courtroom or, or when I have a Zoom argument over the last year um, and I hear a question from a colleague, that's the first time I've heard any kind of expression of thought from my colleague about, about that case. I see. I see. Uh, and, and so... I've always said deliberation starts in the courtroom. Um, and, and I don't know if lawyers like to hear this. I think lawyers end up serving as an instrument through which the judges talk with each other. That makes sense. Uh, when, when we have a very effective oral argument. Uh, and, and, and I've seen it many times uh, where uh, oral argument has changed my mind. Now, I will say you more often that happens because one of my colleagues has raised a point that I haven't thought of, and the lawyer has helped then uh, explain that point to me. The lawyer has played a role, but it, but it's usually not just the lawyer. 
it's usually the colleagues role uh, as as well um, and you know I've gone in to oral argument thinking one thing about a case and then heard one question from a colleague that almost immediately changed my mind because they saw something I did not no that's good to hear and and I think that's you know, advocates will like to hear that because, you know, there's so much, um, especially in the 11th Circuit, decided on the briefs. Um, yeah, but, but, but let me say this. Let's not denigrate brief writing. Brief writing is important. Yeah. In most cases, um, you know, should be and can be decided on briefs. The briefs tell us everything we need to know in a lot of cases to reach an absolutely correct decision and, and to do it unanimously. Right. Uh, and, and so when, when, when a, an appeal, a fully briefed appeal comes to our court, it's sent to a, pandem, a panel randomly and any one of the three judges can send that case to oral argument. Uh, one judge is designated beforehand as a writing judge and will circulate a proposed opinion if that judge doesn't think um, oral argument is needed. Uh, but, but if any one of the three, even if two of the judges are in agreement about how the case ought to be decided and what the proposed opinion should look like, any one of the three can send the case, um, to oral argument. And, and so when, when we don't send a case to oral argument, it's because we've unanimously agreed. It's just not going to be helpful to us. And, and I think that's a compliment to brief writing. The sure. briefs have told us what we need to know about that case. And that's the lawyer's first opportunity to persuade us about the case. But but I guess your circuit takes things a little differently than other circuits. For example, in the second circuit where I just had a case, if you request oral argument, you're going to get it. In our circuit, that's not always the case. Um, and so even if both advocates, by the way, ask for it, if, if the judges believe they can decide on the briefs, they do in the 11th circuit. Um, should on the that, other, on the other hand, if no one requests oral argument, we may still grant it. Fair, fair enough. Um, fair enough. Should there be more oral arguments, though? I mean, we our circuit has, I think, a pretty low number compared to others. We we hear about twenty percent of our fully briefed appeals and oral argument. Right. I think that that number is about right. Um, maybe a little low. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean. I think actually we could probably decide a, a little bit more without our argument. Um, my my screen rate is a little higher than some of my colleagues, um, but, but I think it's basically about right. Um, uh, and and re let's let's too remember that a lot of times the lawyers don't ask for oral argument, which is so strange um, to me. They, I, I never understood that. I think it's a, it's just what we were talking about with trials. It's a matter of cost. Mm, I see. Right. In the criminal uh, case, we, we've got to we've got to remember that somebody has to pay for this. <laughs> <laughs> right. I guess in the criminal cases, you know, when the appellant is always asking for oral argument and, and the winning side, the government in almost every case says, no, it's not needed. Even in in cases of first impression, the government says, no, 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 no. Just rule on the briefs um, because they know that when there's a ruling on the briefs, most likely it's going to be affirmed. Um, cases that get to oral argument are a little closer. Uh, but but going back to brief writing for a second, you know, it, it's interesting to talk to 
an appellate judge because we don't get much feedback on our briefs. It's not like we hear what's good and what's bad. There's been a lot of talk lately about, you know, both brief writing and opinion writing has has gotten too creative. There's too many quotes. There's too many stories. Do you like to see that stuff in in briefs or or is it too much from the lawyers these days? I don't think I get too much of that from the lawyers these days. Um, you know, I think you can be a little creative there. So I think everything about what the rules require in terms of um, a well-constructed brief um, is important, every, every aspect. So um, a really well-done table of contents and table of authorities is very helpful to the reader. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I can, I can tell uh, an amateur from a true professional in brief writing by just looking at the table of contents. Right. If it says argument, page 20, conclusion, page 50, and, and, and doesn't have then the Roman numerals and subheadings and the outlines of an argument, I know I have an amateur. Um, uh, and, and I see a lot of those. Um, um, you know, but, but as important as all of those aspects are, including summary of the argument, sometimes I go into oral argument and, to, and you know, I'm trying to keep in my head 16 cases for the week. You're, you're worried about your one case. I'm worried about 16. And so going to the summary of the argument and the briefs for the arguments that morning can be very helpful when the summary of the argument has been taken seriously and, it, and it's well constructed. Um, one thing that's not required by the rules that I see lawyers do that are that perhaps more, is more creative is sometimes having an introductory um, section, um, maybe a paragraph or two uh, that, that just puts everything in context and says, here's what this case is about. Right. Uh, I think that can be a very effective uh, writing tool, a brief writing tool. I think um, you're going to see a lot more of them now after this interview. So, so but that depends about- on how big your audience is. <laughs> <laughs> and that's fair enough. Um, but there's also been some talk about whether judges should be creative in their opinions. And there's been some, you know, I love it. I love reading um, the stories and the quotes and that's kind of thing. Um, but there has been some criticism. What, what's your position on that? I, I like reading your opinions. It, it has lots of that kind of stuff, I think. Should, should we have those kinds of uh, stories and quotes in, in opinions or no? I think it, it, my, my philosophy is that if it helps um, convey um, why the court is reaching the decision that it's it's reaching, then then you should feel free to do it. Um, sure. It, 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 I think sometimes that stuff can be gratuitous. It could be perhaps more entertaining to the judge than to the reader. Um, but if there's an entertaining or um, you know um, colorful way to make a point. Uh, I think that to the extent that it really captures an idea, makes it um, more understandable, makes the opinion more readable, um, I think that it can be effective. I think Justice Scalia, for example, really taught us all uh, that with his dissenting opinions. Um, so, sure. so for me, that's the test. Um, the test is, do, do I really understand um, the point of it? Um, you know, sometimes I think you can... You can use that kind of material in an introduction, but when you finish the introduction of the pair of the opinion, you still don't know what the court is going to rule and why. 
uh, I try to make my opening paragraphs uh, really a summary of, of what's coming. Um, but, but, you know, so I clerked for John Minor Wisdom on the Fifth Circuit after I finished um, at law school at Tulane. Wonderful. And, and uh, you know, it was a wonderful experience. And Judge Wisdom had a style sheet he called Wisdom's Idiosyncrasies. Uh, the Yale Law Journal later published a version of them. Um, so if you, they're easy to find if you want to look them up. But uh, one of the things he told law clerks about the opening paragraph of the opinion, this is the way Wisdom's Idiosyncrasies puts it, is put the sex appeal in the first line of the opinion. Uh, okay, so that was, you know, that's John Minor Wisdom, New Orleans <laughs> aristocrat, writing that, you know, 50 years ago. I love um, it. You know, put the sex appeal in the, in the opening um, sentence and, and in the opening paragraph. So I, I don't know how new an idea that is, um, but, but the, the, the question is, are you, are you effective in conveying um, the reasoning of the court? I'm David Oscar Marcus, and we'll be right back with Judge Pryor for the defense. So I had to look up John Minor Wisdom's idiosyncrasies, as Judge Pryor mentioned. John Minor Wisdom, by the way, was a wonderful judge on the Fifth Circuit, a legendary judge. And so when I look these up, I'll read to you some of the uh, first ones, but you should check them out if if you enjoy legal writing. He said, some of which you learned in elementary school from Miss Thistlebottom before you ever heard of Strunk. Try to state the key question in the first sentence, give the court's holding in the first paragraph, or at least in a short introductory section, put the sex appeal in the first sentence and the last sentence of each opinion, first paragraph and the last paragraph of each opinion. One idea to a sentence, present tense, active voice, not passive voice as far as possible, one word instead of two, two instead of three, and so on. Uh, It's a pretty good list, check it out. While I still have a few minutes, I'll tell you one other Ali Shagan story. So I did mention the Salem witch trials in closing, but one thing that I like to do in closing too is make a list of reasonable doubts and I put them on a board. So 10 reasonable doubts, like a top 10 list. And I did that in this case, and I challenged the prosecutor to try to answer the reasonable doubt questions. And I left the board up uh, in front of the jury when I sat down and I said, you know, the prosecutor will probably just take this board and put it back in front of my table, but I challenged him to answer. And the prosecutor took the bait. He actually went question by question trying to answer each of my reasonable doubt questions. But he realized too late that when he was about to finish, his time in his rebuttal closing had expired. And so he took the board and actually kind of threw it at me and Mark Seidel's and Robin Kaplan. And we, you know, jumped back and then his time was up. The jurors were kind of wide eyed when he did that. But it's no surprise it was a not guilty verdict when uh, the prosecutor spent his time in closing, answering our reasonable doubt questions and then threw the board at us. But let's get back now to Judge Pryor, who is going to talk a little about the Corinne Brown case that we talked about with with uh, Judge Rosenbaum last week. Let's get back to it now. Judge, you mentioned Scalia's dissent, and you know there's been a lot of talk lately about civility among judges. Um, it's interesting because Scalia would write these biting, biting dissents, really aggressive. A lot of people said they weren't civil, but um, Justice Ginsburg would write back and then they'd go have a beer after or go to the opera together. And they they didn't take it personally, the opinion writing. Right. 
And, and so why can't we have that now? I, I don't see any problem with judges uh, writing, cutting dissents or opinions like Justice Scalia. I asked um, Judge Rosenbaum about this. She said, you know, that you two sat next to each other at a recent conference and, and, and had a great time and talked about each other's yeah. personal interests. But um, wh- why can't we have opinions that have those kind of cutting dissents? Is that a big deal? No, I don't think it's a big deal as long as what the cutting is about is about um, the decision, is about the law. Um, and I think that if you disagree strongly, um, expressing the strength of the, of the disagreement is, is important. Um, a, a great dissent helps um, the writer of a majority opinion write a better opinion. And, 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 and the stronger the majority opinion is, the, the you know, I, I think any dissenter would tell you the, the, the better it can make their dissent. Um, the back and forth that, that, that we go through in, in sharpening our points makes both of our opinions better. I'll tell you from, from the audience point of view, when we're reading this stuff, we love when you and Judge Rosenbaum are on opposite sides. We love reading those opinions because for what you say, it's, it's, it's a great back and forth of the highest level of opinion writing. So it's, it's, it's fun from when, not when I'm an advocate, but fun when I'm just a, a reader to see that sort of, to see that sort of back and forth. Well, uh, yeah, again, I, I, I think any, any judge will tell you that, you know, sharp dissents can make for better majority opinions. You know, but, but, but what you want to avoid is personal of course, kind yeah. of, of bars. Um, and and, and I, I think we, I don't think we do that. Uh, I think that there have been, you know, let's, let's, let's remember at least 95% of our appeals are still resolved unanimously, which is, I think, a great testament to the rule of law in America. Uh, the fact that judges who come from very different backgrounds appointed uh, by different presidents over, you know, decades, um, you know, who we don't choose our colleagues, our, you know, the colleagues are chosen for us. But we come together and in just an extraordinarily high percentage of cases, we agree what the law requires for um, for the individual cases. Uh, so but, but when we do have disagreements and they are profound disagreements, um, e- expressing the strength of the agreement uh, disagreement is um, is important. Oh. I guess I'm going to ask you about one of the things you've written about this publicly. So I don't think it's a secret. You wrote about it in Shagan and some other cases. You don't like when there's a rehearing denial for there to be a dissent to that rehearing denial. You've written about that. Um, but why is that? I mean, you know, when, when the Supreme Court denies cert, you often see Clarence Thomas or, or mm-hmm. um, Sotomayor write, say, hey, we should have taken this case. What, what's, what's the problem with the judge saying, hey, uh, I disagree that that the 11th Circuit didn't take this case. You know, sometimes I think judges can take themselves too seriously. <laughs> well, that, no objection. Uh, and, and so, yeah. So um, there's there's a line between being the judge and being the advocate. Uh, and um, it's when, when the court decides not to hear a case, uh, and a dissent from denial of rehearing is filed. It's usually not uh, just an opinion about 
why we should have heard this case. It's an opinion about why the case was wrongly decided. Being written by a judge who has not gone through the same process that the panel has. Uh, and, and because we denied rehearing en banc, not gone through the process that the en banc panel would go through. That is the filing of briefs, the writing of the, you know, the, the, the reading of those briefs, the, all, all the legal research that goes into it and the careful look at the record and the back and forth of deliberation and opinion writing. Um, you're, you're just, you're making more of a decision on the fly and it, and it's not contributing in, in my judgment, um, to the resolution of the dispute. Um, the dispute's been, uh, decided. Um, and often when, when you get those kinds of dissents, there's already been a penalty. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not really something new being contributed, um, to, to, uh, the debate about how the case ought to be decided. It, it to me, it looks more, it, it, it has the potential to be, to look more like grandstanding um, uh, or the issuance of more of a press release <laughs> uh, as opposed to a really meaningful contribution to how the case ought to be decided. Uh, I'm not the first to have had these thoughts. You know, uh, Judge Friendly thought the same thing when these started first being filed, uh, who was a great judge. Ray Randolph from the D.C. Circuit had um, a similar view about them. Uh, and, and that, that's, that's really maddening. Um, I, you know, I think sometimes they're, they're written to get the attention of the Supreme Court. Well, that's the lawyer's job. <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's, 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 let's let the lawyers do their work. You know, and, and let's not pretend that we're, that we're more important than the lawyers. And, 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 and it's not our task to be the advocates for those parties. You know, some have said that the court, should, your court, should take more en banc cases. This is something you and I have discussed a little bit. Um, the defense bar always feels, "Hey, you're given en banc when when the prosecutors lose, but never when the defense loses. How come we can't get a an en banc hearing with you all?" Um, and so, of course, know, the last is, the last en banc decision of our court was one that was requested by a criminal defendant. I knew you were going to bring that up, Judge. I knew you were going to bring that case up. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of people will say in the, in the, in the Brown case. And, and, the, and the very next one we're going to hear was filed by a criminal defendant. So, uh, so I'm we're losing going out. to hear. <laughs> yeah, you're using the one the we're going to here in June. Well, this is fortuitous timing of your podcast. <laughs> it, it, makes, it makes my question a lot weaker, obviously, than if I had asked you a couple months ago. But I mean, over the years, there have been very few cases where the defense bar gets um, an en banc case in the court. And so some have said, you know, more, there should be more en banc cases. Some have said, listen, the court itself needs to be bigger. Um, they just have too much work, the 11th Circuit. You wrote an interesting op-ed uh, years ago when, when um, it was President Trump and the Republicans were asking to increase the courts. And I'll give you credit. You wrote at that point, it would be a big mistake. Um, mm-hmm. to do it. And you wrote it in the New York Times. I, I take it you still view view the 11th Circuit as the right size? Yeah, I think the, the case for expanding our court is even weaker than it was when I wrote that op-ed in the New York Times, um, because our caseload is lower. Um, I don't know if you know it, but, um, you know, historically, our court has had a relatively high caseload compared to other circuits. And if you look at it as cases per judge, 
Um, and, and, for, and one of the things we've done in the, in the 20% of the appeals that we hear in oral argument, as you well know, is invite judges from other circuits um, to sit with us and help us with our work. Well, we've stopped doing that. Thank goodness. Uh, because, yeah, well, I, I agree. I totally agree. I think, mo- I, I think the very broad consensus of our court is that's not the best way of doing business. We, th- there are benefits to it. it. It was a great experience to get to know other judges oh, sure. around the country and to hear their perspectives. And we learned a lot from it. But I think uh, for the most part, we, we, we think um, that we're much better when, when we're doing our own work. Uh, and, and, and we have colleagues who understand our precedent. They're, they're, they've developed it. They understand it. They know it. They understand, too, how uh, their, their colleagues will react to certain um, ways of, of, of making decisions. We, we know what kind of pitfalls to avoid if we write an opinion a certain way versus another way. Uh, and, and we just ought to be managing our work. But we're doing that now. Uh, I, I mean, we can we can handle our oral argument calendar with just our judges because now our our our, our filings are down to where they were in the early 1990s. Um, the caseload of our court is just nowhere near what it used to be. The whole visiting judge thing, I have to say, it never made sense to me. Here's a case that made it to oral argument, one of the 20 percent, and so it's one of the important cases. It couldn't be decided just on the briefs, and then we bring in some other judge from another. Uh, court to be part of that process, it seems, it just seemed backwards to me. Yeah, I, I, look, the, the, the courts have had that tradition for a long time, and I think that it can be helpful, particularly in managing caseloads when you, when you have what can be temporary increases. You, you know, if, you, if, if your first reaction is to increase the size of a court, then what do you do 10 years later when the caseload has dropped and you no longer need that many judges, then you're going to have some bored judges uh, <laughs> right. because we, we, we're going to serve for life. Um, so uh, you don't want that. You know, there's a balance to be struck there. I think the, the balance has been struck um, correctly. Remember, again, 80 percent of our appeals were being decided without oral argument. Right. And that means they were being decided by our judges. Right. Uh, we were never using visiting judges, really, for that, with maybe some very minor exceptions. Um, so, um, so you know, th- that's an important thing to remember. We were getting visitors to help us, though, with with what were admittedly our more difficult cases, the cases where we really felt that oral argument would 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 help us reach a correct decision, but. Um, you know, there are a lot of reasons why I think that expansion um, is a bad idea. I mean, look, courts are far more efficient in how we do our work these days than from when I clerked. I mean, we have information technology that helps us. There, there are just so many tools that we have um, to manage our caseload and still produce what I think is very high quality uh, decision making. I think the federal court's reputation for that is is deservedly very good. So we started with Alabama and the Dolphins. I want to um, talk to you just about some of your hobbies. I I saw, I never knew this, that you were a music guy growing up. And yeah. and tell me a little about that and what you play. And, and I'm, I'm interested in, in, in that, Judge. Well, played is probably a, the better, um, the better verb, um, the past tense. Um, so, 
I didn't have much of a choice about that, David. So I, my, my father was a high school band director at the Catholic High School in Mobile, where I grew up. Uh, so I think it was, I don't know, some, somewhere around fifth grade uh, when I woke up on Christmas morning uh, to see what Santa Claus had brought. Um, I, d- I didn't remember asking for a drum pad, drumsticks, and a method book, but um, apparently I had asked for that because <laughs> that's what I got. Uh, this, this is what happens when, when, uh, when, you're, when your dad's a band director. Uh, and so I was a percussionist. Um, my, my father wouldn't let percussionists call ourselves drummers. We had to, we had to play everything. Uh, so I had to play keyboard, percussion instruments, xylophone, marimba, um, and I really became a tempest. Um, you know, the kettle drums that are in the back of an orchestra. That was my principal instrument. And, um, and I went to college originally um, at first as a music major and did well in music, but decided my passion really, what I thought would be a better professional career for me was in law. Um, but I thought very seriously about being a professional um, musician and um and I still love um, serious, uh, particularly classical music, um, everything from Beethoven to Shostakovich, um, uh, and uh, love listening to that kind of music. But it's not like I can have a set of timpani at the house that I can use um, to, to practice. Um, you need some for the chambers there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're pretty expensive and pretty loud. <laughs> but... Um, but um, that, that's the story of, of me and music. I, I, all of my, I, I have two brothers and a sister, and we all had to play uh, musical instruments. One of, my, one of my brothers is a band director, and he, he did pursue that as a career. Um, Wonderful. Um, I have a sister who's a pediatric cardiologist. She went to Tulane Medical School when I was at Tulane Law School. We, we actually shared an apartment, but she still plays the clarinet. Wow. In a, in a, in a local community um, uh, band. That's wonderful. And, and uh, it's nice to hear, you know, that background. I, I really want to thank you for doing this, Judge. It was, it was uh, enlightening and fun. And, and um, I just wanted to thank you for taking the time. And uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. Well, it was fun uh, to talk with you, David. Uh, I'll see you. Um, I'll see you again, either in the courtroom or on, on our Peloton screen. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. Keep it up, Judge. Nice talking to you. Good to talk with you. Well, that was a really cool and interesting interview with the Chief Judge of the 11th Circuit, William Pryor. Did you hear that Peloton reference at the end? Yes, every now and then we see each other working out on Peloton. And I have to say, the Chief crushes me. I want to thank the three judges for the season, Judge Pryor, of course, Judge Rosenbaum, Judge Breyer out from San Francisco. I want to thank Amundi Nyong'o again for letting me use the wonderful song. Um, we're going to be back in season four, back with criminal defense lawyers talking about their most interesting cases. We'll shift back away from the judges and back to uh, what got this podcast started and going into what works and doesn't work for trials and the background stories and the origin stories of the trials. I want to thank all of you for listening. I really need uh, your continued support by subscribing and liking and leaving comments on all the podcast platforms. It really does help get the word out there. Uh, For those of you in Florida, the CLE code for this season gets you five credits. It's 210-469-2020. 
zero N. That is two one zero four six nine zero N. Again, I want to thank the judges. Thank you all for listening. I've had a really fun mini season in season three in For the Defense. I'm David Oscar Marcus. We'll see you next season in season four. Thanks. <laughs>